0: Stocks, bonds, ETFs, straight out of downtown Chicago, this is Zach's Market Edge. Welcome to Zach's Market Edge, the podcast about investing in your life. I'm your host, Tracy Reineck, and this week I'm going solo to talk about the hottest investing book of 2020 and now also in 2021. And I have a feeling this book is going to be the hottest investing book for numerous years. Usually when you get one of these big breakout books um, that's this good, it kind of just stays up there and everybody reads it for numerous, numerous years. So have you read it yet? What is it? It's The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. So he's a partner at Collaborative Fund. And he was a columnist at The Wall Street Journal and The Motley Fool. So he has a long history of talking about money and stocks, investing, all of these things. And you can follow him on Twitter. He's just said his name. And it's Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N, Housel, H-O-U-S-E-L. And he's a good follow on Twitter as well. But go out and buy the book. Again, it's The Psychology of Money. And here's the tagline on the book timeless lessons on wealth, greed, and happiness. So I know what you're thinking. You know, you're, you're thinking this isn't a book about stock investing, and that would be correct. It's not directly on stocks, but it's about our behavior about money and why we do what we do about money. And he does look at why some have been able to build wealth, others have been able to build it and lose it, He looks at a lot of things such as luck, like even uh, this has been discussed in other books about the year you were born. Sometimes that even matters in what opportunities are available to you when you come of age when you first start investing or get your first job what is happening in the world maybe there's a war going on and you're sent off to war maybe um, there's a great recession like the older millennials had that graduated out of college right into one of the worst job markets in you know 50 to 75 years that isn't their fault that's just the roll of the dice, basically, what happened at that moment. Maybe you got out of college at the end of the 1990s when all the dot coms were hiring like crazy and you were able to get this fantastic job at one of them um, before the crash came. Maybe you graduated in 2001 right after the dot com crash and you were an engineer major and you couldn't get a job because of the bus like there's all these factors and he talks about all of them and what how that influences what we do with our money, how you can build your wealth and then stock investing is kind of wrapped in there. So there's one concept that he does talk about in one of the chapters and the chapters are very small. So this is not the intelligent investor, which I've talked about on the shows in the past. This is only 238 pages, so it's fairly short. And again, it's like these mini chapters that you can just read like one, one a night or whatever floats your boat. And they're not super long, and you get like a lesson in each one. Um, so keep that in mind. You're not you're not going to be wallowing in it for you know weeks and weeks. You can read it pretty fast. But one of the concepts again that he does bring up several times and he devotes at least one whole chapter to it let me see what the chapter is called um it's chapter four confounding compounding and in this one it's basically a chapter devoted obviously to compounding and that is warren buffett now he talks about how there's been 2,000 books written about buffett and how to invest like him i'm kind of surprised it wouldn't be more than 2000 but Let's just suffice it to say there's a lot of books about Warren Buffett and how to invest. But to household, um, you don't even need to read all those 2,000 books because it all comes down to really one factor, one, one factor that really makes Warren Buffett stand out amongst the crowd and why there are 2,000 books devoted to him now. And then he says this. And I'm quoting now, his skill is investing, but his secret is time. So time is really the key to this chapter. That's the compounding and the power of the compounding. Now, I know you've all heard about the power of com- com- compounding because I have too, right? the magic magic of compounding. And we've all heard about this when we talk, especially about our 401ks or IRAs for retirement savings. We've all heard, start early, compounding needs time. If you can do it in your 20s, you know we've seen the numbers. Oh, if you invest $100 a month starting when you're 23, by the time you're 63, you'll have a million dollars, blah, 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 we've seen all this, right? Um, and it's all correct, right? So if you make 15% a year annually, you'll double your money in five years. Um, I took a look at the S&P 500 right now, and I looked over the last five years for just that. The S&P is up 93.7% over the last five years. So it's almost there. And since 2010 2010 to 2020, so I'm leaving out the first couple of months of 2021 here, 2010 through 2020, 10-year return, the S&P 500 has annualized 13.6%. So not quite at the 15%, but pretty close. So that's why if you've been putting money into, uh, in your 401k, in like a basic S&P 500 index fund, since the Great Recession, you're now seeing the fruits of that labor, of putting that money in there, right? Because we're getting this very nice annualized return here in this bull market of 13.6%. So when, Household wrote this book. It was about 2019. So now it's 2021 because you need a little bit of leeway time. Send it to your editor. Got to do all those edits. Then they print it, publication date, all that stuff. So some of the data in it is a little bit out of date, but not in a bad way. So when he wrote this book in 2019, Warren Buffett's net worth at the time was $84.5 billion. And then he makes this uh, claim of that 84.5 billion 84.2 billion was made after his 50th birthday so he was worth just 300 million dollars about on his 50th birthday and by age 65 81.5 billion of it had been made after 65 so after he basically could technically retire and start collecting his social security. I, I'm sure he did start collecting it right around that some point. But he made the vast majority of his wealth only, uh, let's see, a little over three billion dollars. He was worth at three billion at 65, and now, as of when this book was written, he was worth 84.5 billion, and now. If we update it, I just saw a headline that he's now worth a hundred billion again because Berkshire Hathaway stock is surging up there. So he's now 90. he's worth a hundred billion, but he's made literally almost the entire hundred billion since age 65, minus three billion. So he's made 97 billion in his net worth since age 65 so most of it in the last 25 years now let's recall warren buffett did begin investing at a very early age remember the stories about how he was out there on the paper route he took his paper route money and he started buying stocks around i think age 10 or 12 i want to say household says it's at 10 in the book and by age 29 he had already amassed a million dollar portfolio and that is equivalent, according to Household, of about $9 million today. So he was already ahead of the game because he had already invested nearly 20 years by the time he was 29. And now, obviously, if he started at 10 and he's now 90, he's been compounding all of his investments for 80 years. So let's think about it this way if Buffett had died at 65, with a net worth of $3 billion. even with his great investing record at Berkshire Hathaway over from the 1960s into the 70s and the 80s, um, would we all be talking about him today in the same way? Would he have 2,000 books written about him or would it be 20 or 200 books and that's it? Obviously, the longer you stick around, the more people are paying attention as well. But I would argue, no, we wouldn't be talking much about him. We would be talking some, but not as much because there wouldn't be these headlines of Warren Buffett now is the world's richest man, which it was a while ago. Um, But those have been headlines over the years in recent years. And now he's back to 100 billion. So let's think about some other stories that I've talked about on various podcasts in the past in my buy and hold type of podcasts. So remember the story of Ronald Reed? He was a retired gas station attendant in Vermont. He worked for his brother at the gas station. Remember back in the day in the early years of uh, gas powered cars? You had an attendant working at the station who would like pump the gas, clean the windshield, you know, check your tire pressures, all this other stuff who just kind of worked there. And so that was his job up in Vermont. Then he retired from that. I guess his brother owned the station. He retired from that and he was kind of bored. So he went to work at J.C. Penny in the nineteen in his 60s. Sorry, in his 60s um, as a janitor. So he worked at J.C. Penny for a while. And he just basically saved his money, Uh, lived a fairly frugal middle class life, Uh, had a wife and a couple stepchildren and just kind of saved and invested in the stock market. So when he died in 2015, he left an estate of eight million dollars. And this is why it became news, because part of that money was left to his local library and the hospital and then the rest went to his family and friends. So he left $5 million to the library and hospital. Uh, But he grew up in a relatively uh, poor farming family. He was the first to graduate from high school in his family. And according to profiles after he died and the story came out, um, he apparently read the Wall Street Journal daily and then he did buy blue chip companies that he understood in his stock portfolio over many years. So some of the stocks that he owned were ones we all know he owned AT&T, Bank of America, CBS, JM Smucker, and Deere, apparently. And the articles talk about how he did end up with losers over the years. Some companies went bankrupt. Others just basically went nowhere, treaded water. But he did like dividend-paying stocks, so he would reinvest the dividends and as I've mentioned before on shows about dividends, dividends compound. And if you can get two, three, 4% dividends every year for 20 or 30 years, compounding, it starts to really add up in addition to what the stock itself does. So between 1960 and 2018, The S&P 500 return was 7.82%. It's not too bad for that huge length of time, 7.82%. But with dividends reinvested from the companies in the S&P 500, just with that reinvested, it jumps up to 11.17%. So suddenly you're making double digits over decades. And as we know, as I'm talking about, What does that mean for compounding? It means a big deal. So Ronald rarely sold. And um, he kept his portfolio, kept reinvesting those dividends. He did put some new money in over the years. And then he just let it be. But his biggest, biggest success, and one of the reasons we learned about him, um, is because he lived to be 92 when he finally passed away. And obviously he was able to compound it there towards the end of his life, because that's when the compounding really kicks in, is in the later years when you're actually able to add on an extra seven or 10 years there at the end. So if Mr. Reed had died at age 72 or even at age 82, um, he still would have had wealth. He still would have been able to be generous to people he loved and to these institutions, but it would have been a lot less than $8 million because that final 10 years from 82 to 92, and he died in 2015. So yes, he had the Great Recession sell-off, but he also had the Great Recession re-inflation after it hit bottom and started moving up there in his last couple of years there. So um, would we have heard about Mr. Reed if he had made these donations, if he only had $2 million, we might have, it's still, that's still amazing and impressive, but it's the $8 million for someone who worked at the types of jobs he did that really is the thing that made the headlines that caught everybody's eye. Now, um, a lot of these buy and hold stories, the ones I've talked about over the years on the show, are usually someone in their 90s or 100s because of the compounding and what it means and the secret of time. So those, again, those last 10 years can be incredible wealth builders. So let's look at Buffett again. (laughs) He is now 90. What happens if he lives to 100? What happens to his Berkshire Hathaway investment and his net worth if he gets another 10 years to compound and he literally will have been an investor for 90 years? Well, he's at 100 billion, so we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. But this is when the power of compounding really starts to show up. Um, He also gives how also gives another example in the book and this also tells you about what time is and how powerful just the time means so his other example is one of jim simmons he's the head or was the head of renaissance technologies which is a quant hedge fund that he started he was a mathematician originally and so he didn't start the hedge fund until he was much older um And he recently retired, I believe, from the board. He did retire from uh, leading the company a number of years ago. But Renaissance Technologies and Jim Simmons has compounded money at 66 percent annualized since 1988. And Buffett's compounding record um, over a different period and a longer period was 22 percent or is 22 percent. So Simmons net worth is around 24 billion and that makes him according to wikipedia and forbes magazine the 24th richest american now you might not have even heard jim simmons right even though he's worth 24 billion so why isn't he beating buffett why is buffett worth 100 billion jim simmons is only worth 23 or 24 billion even though he's been compounding money at 66 percent And that's because he didn't start Renaissance until, again, 1988, when he was about 49 years old. So Buffett started, Buffett already had a million dollars, but inflation adjusted $9 million by the time he was 29. And um, Simmons didn't start Renaissance until he was 49. And now he's 82, So he hasn't been compounding as long, even at getting the 66 percent, still extraordinary. And if you're getting 66 percent, even for one year, you're going to do quite well for yourself over time. But to get it every year does catapult him into among the richest people in the United States over that time period. Now, notice how in this whole discussion, I haven't really talked about a specific stock, so to speak. Sure, Mr. Reed owned you know, some of these blue chips that I mentioned, but um, I haven't talked about how any of these three individuals have bought like one of the lottery stocks as we call them. None of them bought some biotech that was gonna have some new drug that was going to change the world and save us all or anything like that. They, they didn't buy those. None of them um, bought in at, you know, the first month of some hot IPO. No, they didn't buy those. Um, You know, none of them seemed to buy anything that was particularly hot or (laughs) happening at the time. Right. Um, So yet, This is where they ended up still accumulating large amounts of wealth by just buying kind of these, you know, steady and true staying invested consistency and then dividends reinvested. These are basic things, but. Um, Again, you don't need to buy that lottery stock. I know so many of you are on the lookout for the next GameStop or, oh, why didn't I buy GameStop at 6 bucks and look at what it's done? But you don't need that. Um, Again, you could just buy the S&P 500. It's not going to get you 66%, but it's getting you 13, what was it, 13.6 or something did I say? Um, Looking through my papers, what was it? It was, yes, 13.6 over the last 10 years. And what does it take to double your money if you're getting 13? It's less than 10 years. So you're doubling it there. Um, The most basic thing you can do is just buy the S&P 500 ETF. And I own and recommend the Vanguard one. It's uh, ticker VOO because it is low expense ratio you're just going to hold it you want the lowest expenses you can find for it and it's 003 percent expense ratio now if you want to buy the blue chips like a lot of these buy and hold investors have done you haven't done too badly in the last 10 years if you've done any of these kind of blue chip winner companies these are big cap winners uh microsoft i took a look at that i own that in my own personal portfolio but i haven't owned it 10 years it's only been like two years i want to say maybe three years that i've owned it again um, and but 10-year annualized return for microsoft this is 20 uh starting in march 2011 through march 2021 which we're in right now is 27.6% annualized return. So $1,000 invested in March 2011 in Microsoft would be $11,442. That's without the dividends reinvested. So it'd be even higher if you reinvesting that dividend. By comparison, the NASDAQ during that time is up 15.45. The Dow is up 11.68. Comparing it to a couple of its competitors, Apple, 10 years, 27.04, so right next to Microsoft right there. And then Alphabet, uh, which is G-O-O-G-L, is 21.29 during that same 10 years. So a little bit less for Alphabet, but um, still over 20% for these companies annualized. How long does it take to double if you're at 20 Not too long, a couple of years, that's it. I took a look at some old economy type stocks, too. Union Pacific, one of the railroads, UNP is the ticker there. You were getting 18.56% annualized over the last 10 years. That's without the dividends, remember. Um, $1,000 invested in 2011 was $5,487 without the dividends here in 2021 took a look at Bank of America because Mr. Reed had owned that one. We know all the problems with the banks. They were favorites of many of the buy and hold investors because of those dividends. And because of uh, before the Great Recession, the belief that they were pretty much safe, these big banks, Um, that didn't turn out to be totally true. So be careful when, when you think something is safe. But Bank of America was one of the survivors. BAC is the ticker there. And it has done annualized return since 2011 of 11%. $1,000 invested is 20 or $2,839 without the dividend. But they only just reinstated the dividend a couple of years ago um, when the Fed allowed allowed it to be reinstated. Uh, so if you get 12% on average a year, you double your money in six years. So the Bank of America, what did over the last 10 years, so very close to that, um, you know, six-year time frame. If you do 10%, you'll double in 7.2 years, so still not too shabby in Bank of America. I think a lot of people are pretty down and negative on the banks, but you're still, um, you know, chugging right along if you're a long-term investor. So there are many more lessons and things to think about in this book. This covers just like one little chapter of <laughs> some of the stuff he talks about, but I still can't thinking stop thinking about it all these months later. It did keep me up at night when I was first reading um, the book, and because I had all these thoughts going through my mind about investing, stocks, uh, what my relationship was with money in general, and it's just... A really good book to pick up and um, you know just dive in because those chapters are short and these things matter, right? Um, we're all busy, we all have short attention spans now with the COVID, but um, it's an easy book to read. And by the way, Mr. Hustle does disclose that he mainly buys index funds in his own personal portfolio. And remember Jim Cramer from Mad Money from CNBC. Does recommend that if you have money to invest, that your first $10,000 should be invested in a basic S&P 500 fund, like I mentioned earlier, the Vanguard or whatever basic one you can find, and um, then do individual stocks after that. I too have a mix of both indexes and stocks. Indexes really tend to take the emotion out of it. You just basically put it in every month or every year and you forget about it. And you still get the compounding, the magic of compounding, and you don't have to guess right or wrong because you're betting if you're doing a broad index on the ETF, um, you're guessing on the entire broad market. So you're guessing on the entire S&P 500 or the entire NASDAQ or the entire universe of small caps or mid caps or what whatever index you're choosing to follow. And- That um, helps in case there's some kind of blow up or, again, bankruptcy, or you guess wrong. That's what makes individual stocks a little more risky. And I've mentioned in the past that I believe you should have at least 10 to 20 individual stocks if you're going to go that route. Um, And, again, I still love indexes and buying those ETFs for diversification and just for the ease of doing it. That's why uh, we tend to build a lot of wealth in our like 401ks and IRAs because we're just putting it into the basics. But as, as this chapter shows and um, as all these examples show, the basics can work. You don't have to get fancy but you do need time on your side. So I'm sure if you're like me and you read this book, you suddenly feel a little anxious, like, am I too late? Um, Or if you're younger, you gotta feel pretty good about where you're standing. If you are in your twenties or your thirties right now, you still have the time. You still got that time on your side. So um, the key is to get in, uh, to invest regularly, to be consistent and patient. Don't get out. That's also a problem I got to cover on another podcast. And uh, just be a long term investor and let the power of compounding work for you as Warren Buffett is now. Um, Now, he's never going to go out of the public eye. uh, Probably ever as he keeps going on and compounding here, Mr. Buffett. And um, that's an amazing thing, and all of us have the capabilities of growing our wealth and um, our, you know, becoming better or good stock investors simply by having that secret of time. So keep that in mind. Pick up this book, The Psychology of Money, by Morgan Housel. And I'm going to be probably covering some more concepts in it um, over the course of this year because, again, I can't stop thinking about it. And there's a lot of other chapters in here with some really great advice, too, that does relate back to stock investing and how we do it. So so pick it up and let me recap the, the stock tickers and things I did talk about if you – kind of want to go out there and do the basics. So there is the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF. It's ticker VOO. Again, I do own it in my own personal portfolio. It's easy, it's cheap. Um all of Vanguard's ETFs on these indexes are cheap. So take a look at those. Then I did mention Microsoft. I also own that one MSFT. Apple, we all know it AAPL. And by the way, Buffett, it's been one of his best investments. He bought it in 2016. That was only five years ago. It's not been that long. And it's one of his best investments ever in Berkshire Hathaway. And he was, what, 85 when he bought it. And Apple had been around for, what, 25 years by that point. So iPhone came out in 2007, right? He bought it in 2016. Keep these things in mind. Alphabet's another one I mentioned. G O O G L. I own that one. Um, Bank of America. B A C. And Union Pacific. I still love those rails. They're still out there winning. U N P is the ticker there. And be sure to subscribe somewhere or not subscribe. Follow us. I guess just follow follow the podcast. You can get us on Apple, of course. Spotify. And we're on Amazon Music now. I keep seeing a few numbers trickling in from Amazon Music. You got to dig around to find us on there, but you can find us under Zach's Market Edge. Get us somewhere and I'll see you again next week with some more stocks.